and welcome to the Bossed Up Podcast, episode 405. I'm your host, Emily Aries, the founder and CEO of Bossed Up. And oh my goodness, I can hear my own congestion in just saying my own name, y'all. This is a wildly long cold and flu season for me and my household this year. I've been on and off, mostly sick for like six months now. So I appreciate your patience with my voice uh, being all over the place today because today's topic is a really worthwhile one. In fact, I've been trying to like sound better and feel better before I record this for you all, but it is what it is. Here we are. I got to get I got to get this out in the world. So, hang with me because it'll be worth your while. Today's episode is going to be all about how to be more persuasive when you need to influence without authority. And this topic really came to me because I was recently asked to present on this topic uh, for one of our organizational clients that hired us at Bossed Up to do an in-house nine-month leadership development accelerator for their government relations team. And so this is a a leading pediatric hospital, and we've been working with their uh, team of lobbyists and policy makers and advocates who are very persuasive by nature. That's like their whole job is to influence policy on behalf of this hospital and on behalf of pediatric care, right? And so it was a real interesting challenge to work with these high-level influencers, (laughs) to use that word, and really break down, okay, how do we do this when we don't have explicit authority over, say, members of Congress. And so today's episode is going to sort of hit the highlights of what we talked about in that workshop because it's a very robust area of research that I want to give you some really practical, actionable tidbits of in today's uh, quick boss tip episode. I should add, we did like a whole nine-month level up for them that included things like, you know, leadership vision and strategic planning uh, time management, and then this one, how to influence without authority, was one a workshop that we created on demand for them. So I hear this also not only from our organizational clients, but from all of my level up leaders who are aspiring or first time women managers, many of whom are operating in highly matrixed environments, whereby we're often asked to get people from different departments over whom we have no explicit authority or power to do the thing we need them to do, right? To manage cross-functionally, to manage projects and keep trains moving on time when you can't really tell that person how to spend their time as a full-time employee, that can be really difficult. So if all of that sounds relatable to you, uh, today's episode is going to help you think strategically about getting people to do what you want them to do when you can't wield power over them explicitly. And getting good at influencing Becoming effective at influencing without authority is a critical leadership skill that we all can develop further. So the first concept I want to break down from the, again, very robust area of, of social science and research that exists on this is the concept that there are two kinds of influence. They're known as push and pull influence. Using push influence often requires some kind of explicit authority. You're going to tell them what to do uh, because you're their boss and you have power over them. Or, you know, if they don't do what you want them to do, something bad 
could happen. They could be in trouble. They might lose their job. So they're going to act because they want to avoid a negative consequence. Or on the flip side, you might use push influence by saying, do something I want you to do and you'll get a reward. So this kind of is known in shorthand as the stick or carrot, right? And what's interesting is you might think, well, the stick is bad and the carrot is good. Actually, no, they're both really flimsy forms of motivational influence because the minute that stick, the punishment, or the carrot, the reward, goes away, the minute you're not applying that force on those people, the influence goes away, right? In fact, it can really have unintended negative consequences. So if you're governing by uh, fear, right, you're using the stick form of push influence, that can really breed resentment in that your direct reports, if they feel like you're just governing by penalties and, and getting people to do things or threatening disciplinary action, if someone's not doing what you want them to do and you threaten uh, negative consequences, they're probably already job searching, right? They will leave the minute they can. Or worse yet, they will do the absolute bare minimum to stay out of trouble. So if you set a KPI that says, as long as you have three events a quarter, you know, it doesn't matter how you feel about these events. You don't have to understand the impact that these events have. But as long as you have and host and put together three events per quarter, then you'll stay out of trouble. What are people going to do? The absolute bare minimum. They might not be quality events. They might just do three events and never, even if they could see the benefit of it, they might never do more than three. So just know that well, there's nothing explicitly wrong with KPIs, and I think measuring KPIs is, in fact, important. If you're just using rewards or punishments, that can have an unintended effect of actually squashing intrinsic motivation. Similarly, some negative consequences or unintended consequences of the carrot uh, is that if you're giving people bonuses, let's say you're paying for performance, that can lead to people playing some pretty silly games, right? Like if you say you create 25 widgets, you know, or you make 25 sales, let's say, per quarter, you'll get a bonus. They will never work very hard to do anything beyond that, right? <laughs> because if they hit 25 a month into the quarter, that's it. They're done working hard for that quarter. Um, and, and that also can lead to unfairness. So if some salespeople are in uh, very dense geographic territories, and others are in less dense geographic territories and they have the same bonus structure, then that's going to lead to a perception of and very real unfairness. Uh, and that can also breed resentment and the worst kind of competition. So push influence, basically influencing with authority, is flimsy. It's common because it's easier, but it doesn't last. And so the alternative I want to focus on today is what's known as pull influencing. When you are using pull influencing, which, to be clear, is much harder than push influencing, what you're essentially doing with pull influencing is you're changing how people feel about doing what you want them to do. Great leaders 
inspire people to take action. They inspire a sense of internal, intrinsic motivation in their team members. And they they win their hearts and minds. So you're actually working not just to coerce a certain behavior out of people, but you're working to change people's minds about the task at hand, to get them to take action because they believe in that action. If this sounds vague and hard, it is. It's very difficult. Um, And some people think you're just born with this ability or not. But on the contrary, this is a skill set we can all develop. And I want to talk more about how we can do that. But first, a few examples of what pull influence can look like in real time or in real life, rather. I was just listening back to a related episode I did maybe a year or two ago in preparation for today's podcast because I think it's related. It's how to be a leader people actually like, episode 322 on the podcast. And in that episode, I make a reference to the office. And so I'm tempted to do so again here. So if you're trying to use pull influence, to, in this case, as I think back to Michael Scott and Angela and and Pam and Jim and Dwight and all my favorite office characters, let's say you're trying to get more people to volunteer on the party planning committee. Using push influence would involve saying things like this. Dwight, if you serve on the party planning committee, you'll get a bonus. Or Jim, you need to volunteer on the party planning committee or I'll fire you, right? You're going to lose your job. Like those are push influences. And that would not yield a good result, would it? They might just go through the motions and put on a terrible birthday party, as we actually saw in an episode when they had a brown-themed birthday party with half-inflated balloons. All my deep-cut office fans will get that reference. Um, But look, you're going to have poorly done work that people don't believe in. So how might I instead use pull influence to get people to volunteer to be on the party planning committee. I would want to change how they feel about the significance of being on the party planning committee. So I might say, look, this is the most meaningful way that we can make our colleagues feel special. This is the one day a year when we get to celebrate everything about them and their uniqueness, and we get to get the exact cake that they like most. We can't have a combined birthday party (laughs) like Jim Halpert once tried to do because everyone likes a different dessert, right? This is like their day. And it's so rewarding to see the smile you can put on your colleague's face by making them feel so very special and appreciated. That's a really emotional appeal that I'm trying to make. Or slash and, you can also speak to the HR data involved here. You might make a rational case by saying, look, you think the party planning committee is just some superfluous hobby that we have here? In fact, it's the number one biggest return on investment we have when it comes to retaining talent in a highly competitive landscape right now. So I might make a rational case to speak to that person's intellectualized sort of uh, rational decision-making part of their brain. It does help when you have a sense of who they are. It helps to have a sense of like who it is that you're trying to persuade and how they act, how they think, because different personalities, of course, are persuaded differently. Uh, So keep that in mind as part of the opportunity we have when it comes to being 
influential through poll influence. Let me give you one more example besides a a little party planning committee persuasion campaign. Let's think about public policy for a minute. When you are trying to get people in your neighborhood or in your town or city to stop speeding, push influence would look like installing more cameras, you know, speed traps. It might look like having more police presence uh, out on the streets and, and radar guns, right? So when you're doing push influence, you're saying, if you speed, you're going to get in trouble. If you speed, you're going to get a ticket. And, and essentially saying, you know, here's the negative consequence for this bad behavior. And obviously that works in a lot of <laughs> regards. Uh, I just saw a, a ticket in the mail for myself. I was going just slightly above the speed limit and a speed trap camera caught me looking rather shocked. Uh, Brad laughed out loud when he saw the photo that comes with it because we share a truck. Uh, We're a one truck family uh, at the moment. And so whenever a speeding ticket comes, which is very rare, I think this is actually the second in 10 years that either of us has ever gotten. But whenever it comes in the mail, we're like, ooh, who was it? And I was like, I know exactly who it is. It's me. It happened a couple weeks ago. Anyway, he thought it was funny. When you're trying to get people to stop speeding, push influence can be helpful. But the minute that those cameras are gone, the minute that the police presence in your town dissipates and and speed traps become less common, people go back to speeding. So instead, a poll influence campaign might involve public service announcements, videos, messages showing people like me the effect of how much worse it is if you are, God forbid, speeding and you hit someone right? You're essentially going for the emotional and rational case to intrinsically inspire someone to behave differently. And if you can really change their view and make a a strong appeal to say, look, you think you're going to get there faster, but really you're just going to get there 10 seconds faster. And at what cost? Because if you hit someone God forbid, in a car, on, on the road, a pedestrian, you know, the the impact on that person's well-being is so much greater if you're going above the speed limit. So you're really trying to make an emotional and rational appeal to inspire that person to behave differently. And that, if you can do that successfully, that's why public service announcements and public health campaigns are so, so critical— you change people's behavior by changing their hearts and minds. Think about it. Seatbelts, you know, click it or ticket. Actually, that's a good example of push influence, isn't it? Because that's a negative consequence. But when I get in the car, I just put on my seatbelt without even thinking because our generation, the millennials, it, there was never another alternative. That was always like what everybody's doing. And that's a very powerful form of pull influence. But for our parents and the generations that preceded them, that's a much harder habit to instill. So the because it wasn't common uh, since birth for our baby boomer parents and, and those who came before. So pull influence, if you can be persuasive and effective in, in doing so, is much longer lasting. It can create lifelong habits to improve people's behavior, but it's harder to do. So let's break down how you do this. How do you influence the cranky person in accounting who you need to get them to do something, but it seems like they don't care. They don't want to do it. They don't care about doing it. How do you get people in the workplace or not to actually believe in what they're doing using pull influence? 
There's three things I want you to keep in mind. Making a rational case, finding the feeling, and then removing obstacles. And if this sounds familiar, um, some of this comes directly out of Switch, How to Change When Change is Hard. One of my favorite books about behavior change, written by two cognitive science brothers, Dan and Chip Heath. Lovely book, highly recommended. I think I read it a decade ago now. And I still reference it all the time because it's not just about individual change. It's also about organizational change. So the first is make a rational case by turning your pain points into clear asks. You want to go in with a clear objective. What is it that I'm trying to get out of this? So if you go to your boss and you say, boss, I'm cold. This office is too cold. Who is setting the thermostat? What's going to happen? What's your boss going to do? Not much, probably, because they they might, A, not care. But even if they do care, they might think, well, I'm not doing anything about this because everyone else in the office thinks it's just fine. So they might not immediately understand what it is that you're asking of them when you're basically complaining to them. And also, at the end of the day, it's not, you know, you don't have direct influence over your boss. So how can we be as rational and explicit and come in with sort of facts and figures here to be as persuasive as possible? So instead, what if you say, hey, I'm cold. This office is set at such a low temperature for me. I could really use a space heater for my desk. It only costs $30. What do you say? Then it's much easier for your boss to understand what it is you want them to do. You want them to approve a $30 office equipment purchase so that you can solve for this problem. So you are so much more likely to be persuasive, especially with busy people who don't care about whatever it is that you're talking about, which is, I don't know, like 95% of people. (laughs) They're just going about their day, worrying about their own stuff. So when you come to someone, anyone, truly, whether they're your boss or not, you know, you have to overcome the obstacle that is they're already preoccupied with something else. So you want to, in that instance, lead with your proposed solution, make a rational case. This is where you can use facts, figures, stats, and come in with a clear objective. Then, if and when you must continue to make your case, And depending on how this person thinks, then it's going to be critically important to find the feeling. The emotional argument can help bolster your rational argument. So how do you actually elicit an emotional response in other people? This is something I talk about in my Speak Up program because being persuasive verbally and actually like inspiring a feeling in other people is kind of an art form. This is this is more the art part than the science part of being persuasive. There's an element almost of theatrics here. How do I engineer an environment that will elicit a feeling in someone? So three things come to mind. Visuals, right? Visual argument can help elicit a feeling. Like, uh, actually, I'll give you an example in a moment. Stories is a second example of how to make a strong emotional case. If you tell someone the story of how impacted they felt when the party planning committee celebrated their birthday because no one else in their life remembered it besides their office colleagues, that's going to be a much more persuasive case for joining the party planning committee. And then props. Props are often overlooked as kind of tacky, but the visual impact that a prop can have is best illustrated in this story that comes straight out of Switch. 
um, there was a retailer whose corporate headquarters, they were deciding on the accounting team where they could find opportunities for savings, cost savings. And one of the accountants was so infuriated because he found that every different hardware store from across the nationwide chain, they were sourcing different pairs of work gloves. And while this didn't really seem like that big of a deal on paper, some of the work gloves were priced at $17 in terms of the cost for acquiring them for the company. And some gloves were being purchased for $2 a pair. And so that wide variance meant that profit margins were wildly different across stores, and there really should be a standardization, and they would actually get a better deal from one of the sourcing companies if they bought all of the company's gloves from this one source. And over and over again, the accountant was trying to make this case, but no one was responding. You know, there was no real desire or will from within to pay much attention until one day the accountant um, set up for a meeting, a a regular meeting with the uh, finance team in the conference room. And in preparation for that meeting, he bought a pair of every pair of gloves that this company sold nationwide. So he actually acquired one of each pair. And he stacked them up on the table And when everybody walked into the conference room, there was a mound of gloves on the conference table showing just how big of a problem this was. And he said, guess how much this pair cost? And then people in the room would guess. Guess how much that pair cost? And people in the room would guess. And they actually saw the wild variance, even though the gloves were relatively similar in quality, you know, wildly different prices. And he finally made a really powerful impact. He got people's attention. He evoked that feeling of, yeah, okay, this is a bigger problem than we realized. It didn't look very big on paper, but it looked real big with the visual and prop element of having all those gloves there on the table. So you can make a rational case all day, every day, but sometimes you need something more emotional to actually evoke a feeling that kicks people into gear and gets them taking action. And that brings me to my final best practice here, which is to remove obstacles. Whenever you're trying to be persuasive, and trust me, I know sometimes colleagues can feel like an obstacle themselves. (laughs) Like, you know, there's one cranky colleague in the office who just feels like no matter what you do or say is never going to do what you need them to do. Like, prepare psychologically and tactically for resistance. When you're trying to be persuasive, you should have an emotional case. You should have a rational case that you're ready to make. And then I want you to preempt some of the obstacles or some of the pushback that you might get. It might be a negative response, like, I disagree, I think this is not important, or I think we shouldn't be doing this, I think we should be heading in a different direction, or it might just be non-response. Oh, wow, they haven't responded to my email in two months. You know, they are just ghosting me. Or it might be, I don't have the time, I have too much going on. Whatever the potential roadblocks or resistance might be, try to preempt it and have some plan to overcome it. And even if you don't have a bulletproof plan that you feel like this will definitely speak to their resistance or this will counter their argument, at the very least, be prepared to co-create a solution with them. Because the only way, particularly as leaders, the only way you can really align your team, get them motivated, get them pointed in the right direction, and get them well-equipped to do what you need them to do, is to make the path forward as smooth and seamless as possible. So remove obstacles, hear them out if they have 
resistance to it, and then co-create a solution as best you can. This is all, of course, easier said than done. It's part art and part science. But remember, this is a skill, a critical leadership skill that you can develop further. So I want to hear from you. If you put this into practice in any capacity, let me know how it goes. Have you been using push influence or do you work for someone who leans too heavily on push influence? I'd love to hear from you because this is all about how we can influence without authority by by pulling people towards us and inspiring the action we need them to take. As always, the conversation continues over in the Bossed Up Courage community on Facebook and in the Bossed Up group on LinkedIn. I'd love to hear your thoughts after the episode there. Until next time, keep bossing in pursuit of your purpose and together, let's lift as we climb.